You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. And you are indeed listening to From the Vault and Piers Cunningham looking back at some of the especially interesting stuff we've covered on the program. It's all available on our website, our full back catalogue, beyondinfinity.com.au. Now, I thought I'd get the ball rolling with a story that we did in October 2017. It was about Australia getting its own space agency. So at the 68th International Astronautical Congress in Adelaide, Senator Simon Birmingham, Federal Minister for Education and Training, announced that the country will finally get its own dedicated national space agency. Now, there's been an interesting article published in The Conversation by a University of Western Australia researcher and and expert by the name of Simon Driver. He's basically made an argument that Australia should have its own space program, like a space agency, like Mm. NASA has, and JAXA, which is the Japan Space Agency, European Space Agency, Russia has Roscosmos. So all of the kind of leading space-faring countries in the world have got their own agencies. Now, Australia doesn't have... We don't necessarily have the satellite launching capability that America does, for example, or Japan or India or a lot of other countries, but we do have technologies that are used by other countries to support their operations because of where Australia is. So the Deep Space Network has receiving dishes in America, Spain and in Australia. Mm -hmm. Tidbinbilla in Australia is the Deep Space Network station just outside Canberra. That's vital to all, you know, basically all of the deep space operations that that, uh, the US does. For example, you know, the Cassini orbiter at Saturn. We talked about the Mm -hmm. close shaves of the rings that are happening right now. None of the information from that orbiter would be usable by anyone and you wouldn't be able to go to the website and see those amazing photos and data being collected almost in real time within a couple of days often or a day Mm -hmm. of being received if it wasn't for the deep space network and the ground stations in Australia. Mm. Similarly in Western Australia the European Space Agency has a receiving station. These facilities are actually they're looking at upgrading them because of the amount of data that's now being sent back because the data rates have increased and the instruments have become more sophisticated. Mm the requirement is now to actually have bigger receiving dishes right. on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so they're upgrading. They've, I think they've added a dish to the Tidbinbilla tracking station. Mm-hmm. A lot of the work to build that is done by the CSIRO, which is our kind of peak scientific body. Yep, funded gov- by gov- the government. Government funded, yeah. but kind of has a private sector linkage as well. So it's in, you know, it works Sell closely the IP with... kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it works closely with Australian private businesses and it also yeah it can make money out of IP and stuff that it develops. Yep. The argument that's being made by this professor from Western Australia, Simon Driver, is that Australia's involvement should go deeper than that. Rather than just providing some services and, and being this sort of vital communication link, in mm-hmm. fact, the, the first landing on the moon back in 1969, the pictures were actually received in Tidbinbilla before they went to America. Yep. But none of our scientific institutions actually get a bite at that data before it gets returned to the Americans. And that's kind of fair enough. It's an American mission. It's mm-hmm. American funding that's sent that mission off there in mm-hmm. American technology. They get the data via Australia straight back to them. Yep. The argument is that we need to be more deeply involved in the process, in the science. Mm. I'm not convinced yet. Well, look at the success of the private space industry over in America now. Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos, SpaceX, 
Elon Musk, we talk about it often, mm-hmm. Bigelow Aerospace with inflatable uh, modules that are actually now being used up at the International Space Station and private cargo ships that, that regularly go up to the International Space Station yeah. and do the jobs that were provided by government. So that, to me, is the sort of thing that Australia needs to be encouraging. And the argument is that you need a an agency, a centralised and um, centrally organised space agency mm-hmm. to coordinate that effort, yeah. at, at that private-public partnership. Mm-hmm. And just as an aside, the Kiwis, if you wanted a, a, you know, nothing more than just a trans-Tasman rivalry, yeah. well, the Kiwis have got a thing called Rocket Lab and they're launching CubeSats and small satellites mm-hmm. from New Zealand now. That's an American company mm-hmm. that has been enticed to invest directly in New Zealand, mm-hmm. taking advantage of its geographical position, yep. similar to Australia. These are little imaging and communication small-scale satellites that using a, a thing called an electron rocket, uh, which is a small-scale rocket. But if the Kiwis can do it, why, why can't Australia? Well, I think one of the reasons is the government takes money out of CSIRO, so there's not much there. And then the, the top scientists, they end up going overseas anyway. So they, they're looking for work, whether it be SpaceX, going over to these institutions. Now, yes, if we created our own here, there's potential, but there would be certainly a money difference in terms of what they could make locally versus what they can overseas. And we see that not just with yeah, the space program, the it's with other industries mm. as well. The mm. tech industry, for example, you make much more money going over to Silicon Valley. I mean, this is yeah. a fundamental question that's going to need to be addressed because one of the things that the CSIRO, and I'm going to come to it as a, as a later feature because they've just had those BHP Science and Engineering Awards have been made recently, but it's estimated by 2030, 40% of current Australian jobs will probably won't exist as we know them, and the pathway to the careers of the future will most likely come from STEM education, so mm. science, technology, education, mm. maths. How do we stop people? Who, if we, we may educate them really well in that area, but yep. how do we stop them going overseas? Now, the only way we can do it is if we've got jobs that are comparable yep. and attractive to them. Yep. A lot of people would prefer to live in Australia. Yeah, of course. But if yeah. they can make a much better living overseas, then they'll do their, their postgraduate studies often overseas mm-hmm. and then they'll wind up settling over there. They might marry a local and then they're gone. Then they're, that, that I, talent, I, that I, education's lost. I think it's also attractive because you're going to rub shoulders with the, you know, the, the people that sure. are high up there. So sure. it's, it's not something where you can sort of start up an agency here and say, well, yes, we've got this. We've got the highest pay. No, no, you've got to build it up. And not have the expertise there. Take, yep. That takes maybe generation to get the expertise that you've got to start somewhere i mean don't forget we used to have a a rocket industry we used to and there's still a rocket range there at woomera in south australia about Mm -hmm. 500 k's north of adelaide Mm -hmm. and from the 1950s through to the 1970s that was a very active rocket range for you know nuclear testing as well well, missile tests you know like technologies involved with the ballistic missiles delivering nuclear warheads all that sort of stuff was tested there and apparently it remains the largest inland rocket range in, in the western world mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of advantages it's got a very stable climate and it's a vast area i mean it's, well, it's enormous well the problem i see is there's no long-term vision with this kind of thing with particularly with the governments and as they fund it so we find that one government gets in and they cut funding the other government comes in and they increase funding or maybe that same government would change the funding around and there's no real vision for this kind of thing so look i guess it's a good start it could be good to find some more information about this program that they're proposing but it could be a significantly long time before there's the sort of expertise and the attractiveness to have this viable for Australia in the future, I, I would think. That's yeah, I mean, they're suggesting that with the push to Mars, which Elon Musk has been talking about, he wants to you know, start launching 2018, they want to, that next year, they mm-hmm. want to land a, a large rocket on the surface, a, a mm-hmm. powered descent, and they want to send a colony there starting in the early 2020s. America's talking about doing it a bit later than that. The Russians have, have signalled an interest, the Chinese have as well. So the argument is that 
as the world gears up for that push to Mars mm. and becomes a kind of a thing that everyone's interested in achieving, then Australia should be wanting to be part of that. The other argument is also that, you know, from a strategic point of view, we should have this technology. You know, satellites can do a lot for securing your borders. It gives you surveillance ability that you wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. From a security point of view, it's argued that, that we, we need to develop this technology. And look, there's good things that come out of having the scientists in our own backyard that, that work on this because... You know, Velcro was was discovered uh, or created for the first space program, wasn't it? It was yeah, that's right. so. There's Teflon. Yeah, yeah, all of these kind of other computer science. Yeah, it comes out mm. of government funded programs. You, you put money into it, and then you, you can take that technology and put it into other people's lives. So, if we had our own, maybe that's something that we can sell to other countries. And as I'll well. just quite yeah. just to finish this, uh, just quite directly from Simon Driver of the University of Western Australia, he says that joining this industry, this space industry, as a meaningful player at this late stage is not going to be easy but it is undoubtedly critical for our economic and scientific future and our security Mm. so whether you agree that or not we will post links this is an article in the conversation written by simon driver well i hope you enjoyed that was a pre-recording of a piece that we recorded back in february 2017 about whether australia should have its own space agency john was a little bit iffy on the subject i was pretty pro the idea and in fact just announced this week at the 68th international astronautical congress that's being been held in adelaide about 5,000 delegates from around the world from various uh, branches of the space industry simon birmingham who's a uh, government front bencher he made the announcement that Australia will, in fact, have its own dedicated national space agency yet to be named. And if anyone has any suggestions of a proper name, not NASA, though, not, not the uh, not National Australian Space Agency that's been taken by the Americans. It stands for other things. If anyone has any great ideas about what you want to call our own Aussie Space Agency, then please let us know. Go to our website, beyondinfinity.com.au, and you'll find our social media handles, both Twitter and Facebook, or you could even email us. But our just starting point is our website to make contact and give us your suggestions, and we'll, we're very happy to read them out on air for what you think the new Australian Space Agency should be called. There's a, a very substantial industry to cash in on, and apparently it's worth $420 billion worldwide, has the potential to create thousands of jobs, and it's also something that Australia has been involved in, as you heard in that podcast I just played back in the 50s through to the 1970s. Australia was quite active launching satellites and developing rockets with some quite heavy payload capability developed at Woomera in South Australia, just north of Adelaide. That's still a missile range, but it could be converted back to a rocket range and uh, become one of the bases of the new Australian Space Agency. So that is exciting news and uh, it's a long time coming. There's been talk of doing it. There's been various investigations and inquiries done by federal governments over the years. They've rejected it because they didn't think it was worth having it. So they've kind of generally rejected on the basis of cost and the sort of cost-benefit analysis. 
Well, now the time seems to have come for us to have a dedicated space agency, and it is being very heartily supported by the likes of the South Australian government. They want to see Woomera back in action. Western Australia has put its hand up also as a place that would like to have an active role in the new Australian Space Agency. It'll be up to the federal government to determine where these nodes are around the country, but they are aiming to try to make this uh, a national spread out industry coordinated possibly in Canberra maybe from South Australia somewhere the exact details haven't been announced and neither has the name it's a positive step forward apparently the Australian like whether it's building microsatellites or providing services or technology to other spacefaring countries around the world. Well, our industry has been growing over the last 10 years at 10% a year, and it's worth $4 billion per year now. The aim is to expand that beyond that very high growth of the last 20 years. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. And in case you're wondering, the name given to the Australian Space Agency is, as what I just said, the Australian Space Agency. So I hope you appreciate those podcasts. They were recorded some time ago, back in 2017, when it was first being debated whether we should have our own space agency. And then once that decision was announced in Adelaide. Now, continuing the theme about Australia's efforts in space, back in May 2017, we recorded this piece, which I'm about to play, and this was about Australia's third ever locally made satellite being released from the International Space Station to study Earth's little-known thermosphere. Australian universities are participating in this European-funded project, the QB50 International Network of 50 CubeSats. One of them was launched recently. They're small. They weigh about three kilos. They're taking advantage of sort of miniaturised technology. So the fact now that there's... It's like a toaster size or something, isn't it? Yeah, they're small. They're like, you know, they're sort of about the size of a a wine bottle, Mm -hmm. a box that a wine bottle would go in, Mm -hmm. that kind of size. They're taking advantage of the miniaturisation of technology. So batteries getting smaller, processors getting smaller, accelerometers... All the stuff that gets packed into a smartphone these Mm -hmm. days, you know, taking advantage of that and putting it into a satellite. Mm -hmm. And rather than relying on one big, hefty, clunking thing that is the way is the same as the car Mm -hmm. and is hugely expensive to launch, Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars to launch something like that into Earth orbit. You can launch these, you can launch a bunch of these CubeSats, do some really useful science and have them distributed over wider areas. So Mm -hmm. if you're doing Earth science, for example, based on observations of, for example, the thermosphere, which is what's being studied by these CubeSats, then having a distributed fleet of satellites in that large area of space mm-hmm. around the Earth rather than being one space mm-hmm. is a really useful thing. Yep. So is this network, are they going to communicate to each of the other satellites? So the 50 that are going yeah, up, they will. so they'll be... A a wide array type network. I think eventually that is the plan. There's one that's been launched. There's three that's been produced in Australia. Mm-hmm. One of them's been launched just recently from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, and that's gone up to the International Space Station. The others may be launched directly into space. Mm-hmm. So generally that that'd be part of another, a bigger cargo or a bigger deployment of satellites. Mm-hmm. It may be one big car-sized satellite, satellites and a few of these CubeSats. Mm-hmm. But for different things, we've talked about the Breakthrough Starshot initiative being funded by Russian billionaire Yuri Mil. And that involves sending little micro satellites, mm-hmm. or it's not really satellites, rather, micro space 
craft out to Alpha Centauri yep. and accelerating the speed using lasers and sails attached to them. So miniaturization of, of, of spacecraft is mm-hmm. really what this is all about. And unless you have to carry something that's huge, either you have to carry a lot of fuel with you. Well, you don't if you're going into Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. These things are cheaper. They're cheaper to put up there. They may have a limited lifespan because you can't adjust the orbit. They don't have fuel. So mm-hmm. they're up there and they stay where, where you've put them. And then eventually, because the Earth's atmosphere is tenuous, there's a little bit of breaking that's caused. And that's why um, even the International Space Station is, is, in, is, in, is in, and, yeah. it's falling to Earth, yeah. basically. They have to boost it higher into orbit mm-hmm. to correct for that. Mm-hmm. And that's what eventually would happen to a, a CubeSat is that they would just burn up in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But no worries about them doing any damage or breaking. They're so small. Yeah, yeah. they're so small. They'll burn up completely in the atmosphere and, and they're not a, a problem to the environment. And they're not adding to that amount of, of, of permanent junk up there yeah. that is posing a, a serious problem. In fact, one of the things that they could even be used for is, is providing information to clear that junk. And like you know, a, a mapping them, of it. Mapping, yeah. knowing exactly where they are mm-hmm. down to perhaps a finer scale mm-hmm. and they are talking about ways of sort of mopping it up and decreasing that issue with orbital debris three CubeSats that Australia is producing will join a total of 28 satellites which were launched into space aboard a rocket from the Air Force Station in Florida they weigh 1.3 kilograms each Various universities in Australia have been involved with them, including the University of New South Wales, the University of Sydney, ANU, University of Adelaide, and the University of South Australia, all joined forces with universities from 22 other countries as part of the international space mission called QB50. They're looking at the thermosphere, as I said. This thermosphere is of interest because it holds the hottest and the coldest air on Earth and is disturbed from above by solar storms and flares emanating from the sun and from below by weather systems. The air is far too thin for research planes or air balloons, but there's still sufficient gravitational force to pull satellites out of their orbit and send them plunging to a fiery end. This thermosphere area of the atmosphere has actually been nicknamed the ignorosphere by scientists, kind of a a Mm. joke name for it, but it's because it's an area of our uppermost atmosphere that's kind of been ignored, overlooked. We don't Mm -hmm. know too much about Mm -hmm. it. It's also a good thing to see that Australia is kind of getting back into the space race, if you like, or into space technology. Mm -hmm. It was something that we used to do with the Woomera rocket range back in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s. Then it all kind of fell away and we've just relied on the Japanese and and Americans Mm -hmm. and other countries Mm -hmm. to launch satellites for us and to make them as well the bureau of meteorology websites i think they're japanese mm-hmm. we're just we you know we're just even piggy- the nbn has a satellite up yeah, there at we're, the moment. We're, yeah. and it's not and it's not australian yeah we're piggybacking off other countries expertise in this mm-hmm. area and it should be something that we should have more of yeah. a, a role in ourselves because we, and we're well aware of hardware that then has other software sitting in the background which is listening in or taking that information for their own reasons so if the chinese for example are making satellites for australians does that mm-hmm. mean that they're then going to put in a back door which they can access that, that same content. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, that's been raised. I remember when uh, Optus was sold to Singtel, mm-hmm. uh, there were questions about whether we really wanted to have a mobile network that Australians were going to be using, owned by a foreign country. Mm-hmm. And in the, you know, in the end, Singapore was deemed to be a kind of a safe enough and, mm-hmm. uh, and reliable enough country mm-hmm. to not be misusing that information or that potentially misusing that uh, information and spying on Australians. Mm-hmm. Who knows whether that happens? Mm-hmm. And similarly with the Japanese, you know, they're, they're an ally, they're a, a big trading partner yep. of Australia's and a kind of a friendly country. But that's not to say that, that some of the information that goes through their satellites isn't isn't being misused in some yeah. way. It is a good thing. It's about sovereignty. The more you can control this stuff yourself, the better. And these CubeSats are a really good step in the right direction. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. 
you heard about Aussie-made CubeSats being launched from the ISS. They were the third ever locally made satellites to release from the ISS to study Earth's little-known thermosphere. That recording was made back in May 2017. Moving on with the space theme today, I thought I would play something that was recorded in April 2016. It is about the $100 million research and engineering program known as Breakthrough Starshot that will seek proof of concept for using light beam to propel gram-scale nanocraft to 20% of the speed of light. A possible flyby mission could reach Alpha Centauri within about 20 years of its launch, hence would be within one person's lifetime. So stand by for that. It's a pretty interesting story. Breakthrough Starshot is a $100 million research and engineering program aiming to demonstrate a proof of concept at this stage. So it's just a proof of concept. Mm -hmm. It's quite a long way away from actually being realizable as a technology for light-propelled nanocrafts. So the idea is to create something that's tiny. It's about using nanotechnology, which Mm -hmm. is sort of progressing in leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. Something that's, say, a centimeter by a centimeter. It's it's, it's a spacecraft on a chip, basically. It sounds like a little micro-USB type drive. Yeah, something like that. But a very, it'll have to be a pretty powerful process because yeah. it's got to do lots of things. It's got to be able to take photos. It's got to be able to process them. It's got to be able to send that information back to Earth mm-hmm. at the speed of light mm-hmm. as a radio signal. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is hamstrungs, you know, humans exploration of space is that the speeds involved are not enough at the conventional rockets that we've got now cannot achieve the sort of speeds that are required to go interstellar mm. right so we can explore our solar system I and mean, it took 10 years to get out to pluto yeah. for the new horizon spacecraft yeah. to get out to alpha centauri which is the nearest star to our own star system i should say there's three stars involved in that it's kind of like a binary or like a trio system mm-hmm. of three stars and possibly exoplanets and other objects out there which mm-hmm. are of interest. It would take 30,000 years yeah. for something traveling at the, at the speed of, yeah. of New Horizons to get out there. And then, so no one's going to be around then, you know, yeah. or, or maybe around, but we may have forgotten about it. It'd be like sort of finding hieroglyphs in a, in a cave, you know, with rock art in France or yeah. in, in Northern Australia somewhere, referring to, uh, oh, you know, just listen in on this signal because you're going to get, we're getting a signal back from Alpha Centauri. <laughs> this was 30,000 yeah. years ago. So, well, so hopefully the technology's advanced by that point as well (laughs) exactly so the idea is to actually use lasers so these big clusters of very powerful concentrated razors and these are called the light beamers this is again taking advantage of emerging and improving technology with lasers so you've got a big farm of these lasers somewhere on earth and they they you've sent up your little nanocraft Mm -hmm. it's got a sail say about the size of a kite sail Mm -hmm. You aim your concentrated lasers, so you might have a thousand or more of these big dishes firing up a laser, all focused on the sail that's already up in orbit. You've already launched a batch of these things, and talking about for redundancy to to ensure the survival of some of them Mm -hmm. on the way out to Alpha Centauri. It's a long way away, four light years. They're talking about sending a swarm of them out there, Mm -hmm. using these laser pulses to accelerate them to about 20% of the speed of light. And that means that to cover the four light years, instead of 30,000 years, you can do it in 20 years. Yeah, wow. And then you take your photos with these little nanocraft. Mm-hmm. You t- you've got your spectrographs on board and you can analyze the uh, atmospheres and the light and yeah. the composition and so on. You might hopefully find some exoplanets out there if mm-hmm. they can be targeted. Mm-hmm. 
And then it only takes you four light years for the data to come back to Earth because yeah. data, the radio waves, travel at the speed of light. Yeah. This is what this, uh, this, is, this breakthrough Starshot project aims to do. It aims to be a proof-of-concept exercise at this stage and down the track, of course, they'd like these things to be developed. I mean, it's talked about that if this thing was to get off the ground, just the, the lasers alone, you know, we're talking about a project of the size of the Large Hadron Collider yeah. under, under the ground between the, the, the Swiss-French border, you know, which was tens of billions, I think it was tens of billions of dollars yep. to, to develop that over years, over yes. decades. Mm-hmm. This is not a small thing. The $100 million is just to, is just to get the thing Drop off the, the ground. Yeah, yeah. Just, to, just potentially to prove the concept is possible. They've got some interesting people involved. A program will be led by Pete Warden, the former director of the NASA Ames Research Centre, and advised by a committee of world-class scientists and engineers. Board will consist of Stephen Hawking, who's the, the renowned British astrophysicist, Yuri Milner, who's a Russian venture capitalist, mm-hmm. tech investor. Yep. He's made billions of dollars backing things like Facebook, Spotify, mm-hmm. startup tech companies mm-hmm. he's got in early and has made a fortune. And he's already been somewhat involved in this sort he, of area, he, hasn't he? He is, and I'll come to that later, but he's, he's got a website called breakthroughinitiatives.org. So if you want to go and read about this yourself, you go to that website, Breakthrough Initiatives. We'll post it on ours in our show notes. But um, he's got another thing called Breakthrough Listen, which is uh, listening out for ET intelligence using radio receivers on Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's right into... I think he's an ex... He started off started life as a scientist. So he's, he's a trained scientist. Mm-hmm. He's, he's Russian, although he seems to spend a bit of time in America, a bit of time in Russia as well. He's very interested in space exploration and pushing the boundaries yep. that, that have applied. Other people involved, so Freeman Dyson, who's a, a renowned uh, scientist, he's in his 90s now, and various other you know, well-known scientists, and, and also a person who's on the board is Mark Zuckerberg, who's the boss of Facebook. Mm-hmm. He's also involved as well. Right. So they've got a pretty good board. They've got some interesting people. Years ago, I should mention that back in the 1950s and 60s, there was a thing called Project Orion. And this is where Freeman Dyson was quite heavily involved with this. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a thing that was funded by the US government. It was quite secret, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was trying to use nuclear power, i.e. nuclear explosion power, so fission explosions, to power a spacecraft to achieve those very high speeds. That yeah. In this case, in the case of breakthrough star shot they're using laser pulses to propel this little nanocraft with a sail Mm -hmm. well project orion was using nuclear explosions released out the back of a rocket with an ablative plate on the on the bottom of it like a sort of a reflective plate yep the bombs released out the back of the craft it explodes and it gives a push yeah and then another one is released and then so there's this succession of pushes yep. that gets you off earth up into orbit and then beyond you know out into interstellar space and you could yeah. apparently theoretically you could achieve a high percentage of the speed of light by using nuclear explosions mm-hmm. now obviously there were there were some drawbacks you know, <laughs> some were yeah, yeah launching you know launching a rocket with thousands of nuclear bombs on board yeah. and having them firing off in the atmosphere on the way up to yeah. orbit was was a bit of an issue yeah. and some environmental concerns there and then also the thing surviving the explosions and and the and and then the actual crew surviving <laughs> the radiation of, of being on this rocket but it's a really good book and it, it is an interesting yarn it's written by George Dyson who's the son of Freeman Dyson yep. I read this a while ago called Project Orion 
and it's published by Our Books. We'll put a link on our website to this. It just gives you an insight into other efforts that have been made to try to get Interstellar. Yep. There's a great film called Interstellar, yeah, which yeah. is about doing this as well, and they do it in a different way again. But you know, to cover any distances in a, in a human lifetime beyond just in, inside our solar system, you've got to actually start chipping away at the speed of light. Yes. And that means, so in the case of Breakthrough Starshot, it's 20% they're aiming for. In the case of Project Orion, it was a percentage. It was depending on the, the configuration of it it was a, it was a full-on effort and there's there's actually some uh, some good stuff on youtube you can watch on on the subject of project orion called to mars by a bomb mm-hmm. the secret history of project orion that's on youtube it's a it's a doco it's about i don't know an hour an hour and a half mm-hmm. so some good some good viewing there if you want to follow this up there's also a youtube video we'll post a link to the press conference where this project starshot was announced um, so as I mentioned, it uses nanocrafts, use a light beamer to push these sails to accelerate these little objects right out and potentially allowing a 20-year trip out to Alpha Centauri, our nearest sun and, and star. I mean, that's going to be some time away. I mean, 20 years or thereabouts, maybe even develop the tech, another 20 years to get out there and then four years to get the signal back. So another you know, 44 years before we may yeah, have look, a signal. That's yeah. right. And there's, and there's all sorts of possible drawbacks as well. Building a ground-based kilometre-scale light beamer at high altitude in dry conditions might be required. Generating and storing a few gigawatt hours of energy per launch. Launching a mothership carrying thousands of nanocrafts to a high altitude orbit. Taking advantage of adaptive optic technology to in real time to compensate for atmospheric effects. So you've got to fire the laser through the Earth's atmosphere, which is going to diminish the power of the laser. Focusing the light beams on the sails. All this sort of stuff. You know, These are all some of the technical hurdles. So it won't be easy. As I mentioned, this guy, Yuri Milner, is a very prolific investor in technology but also in these sort of breakthrough projects. He's got mm-hmm. a website, breakthroughinitiatives.org. Another thing that he's doing is called Breakthrough Listen, the largest ever scientific research program aimed at finding evidence of civilizations beyond Earth. The scope and power of the search are on an unprecedented scale. The program includes a survey of one million of the closest stars to Earth, scans the centre of our galaxy and the entire galactic plane, looks beyond the Milky Way and listens for messages from the closest 100 galaxies to ours. So it's a bit like what the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, uh, intelligence was yep. doing. They've been doing that for decades. Yep. But this is much better funded and yep. better focused, and mm-hmm. it's drawing on scientific knowledge from around the world. It's going to cover 10 more times more of the sky than previous programs such as SETI and do it 100 times faster. The uh, technologies they're using are apparently sensitive enough to hear a common aircraft radar transmitting to us from any of the 1,000 nearest stars. So the sensitivity of this, uh, the technology they bring to bear for Breakthrough Listen, you know, Yuri Milner would love to be, dearly love to be the man who connected us with Mm. extraterrestrial life. And also the guy who who sort of spearheaded a a mission that actually sent us back photos from our nearest celestial neighbour beyond the solar system, Mm. Alpha Centauri, four light years away. Interested in science and tech, partial to the web, apps, Bitcoin, gadgets or space exploration? Beyond Infinity, your weekly dose of science and technology on RPPFM. Tune in on Tuesdays from 11am, 98.7 on the FM dial or stream live wherever you are, rppfm.com.au. And welcome back to The Vault. Look, just to finish off the program, I thought I'd play a piece recorded in January 2017 about Kepler revealing weather on an exoplanet. So the Kepler spacecraft, it had some problems with its reaction and navigation controls. 
so that curtailed the primary mission. But for four years, Kepler did do some great science in its original mission plan, which was to look for exoplanets, so planets beyond our solar system. Mm-hmm. And it did these by staring for long periods of time at one part of space and looking for wobbles in parent stars, which were telltale signs that there was something going around that star and there was a gravitational yep. interaction taking place. Now, what they've been able to do uh, with some of this data, they've, they're, so they've, they've got this terrific amount of data, and it actually only covers a very, very small amount of the sky. So if Kepler... Uh, had kept going if it hadn't had this problem with its reaction wheels and its ability to point accurately and, mm-hmm. and in a stable way then we'd be getting even you know even larger parts of the sky studied by that space telescope but unfortunately we only got about four years before the problems with the wheels started surfacing they're studying the data that was returned before there were any problems with kepler uh, as i said about four years worth of data They've noticed a weather system with strong winds and and changing cloud cover that's been picked up in the atmosphere of a a giant gas planet outside of our solar system. This is the first time this has been done. The object in question is called HATP7b, so it's a Jupiter-like exoplanet, so very, very large. It's not a terrestrial planet. It doesn't have a rocky surface. It's basically gas going down to possibly a, a, a a solid metallic core as is the cable with Jupiter. Four years of data from Kepler telescope shows changes in light reflected from the atmosphere of the planet. The data indicates that strong winds circle the planet with winds varying dramatically and this leading to violent storms. And these observations are opening the door to spotting weather systems on future exoplanets I mean, they've known that these things that are there, so they can they can see from the the gravitational interaction with the parent star, they can see this little wobble. They go, okay, there's something going around there, and obviously something very large, like a Jupiter-sized object, is able to be picked up, as opposed to a small planet like mm-hmm. Earth, which is harder to see. It's it's smaller, isn't going to have such a pronounced gravitational effect on its parent star. This object is HATP-7b, is 16 times the size of Earth and lies more than 1,000 light years away in the Cygnus constellation. And a team of US astronomers have analysed four years of, of data from the planet taken by Kepler, as I mentioned. They've looked for changes in the amount of light reflected by the planet's atmosphere, indicating that the brightest spot on the planet repeatedly shifted position on a time scale of tens to hundreds of days. So it sounds like weather, sounds like yep. a, a, a very noticeable and, and uh, powerful well, storm. Well, like what we see with our Jupiter, our you know, the, the moving whirling, whirling cloud, is that's what they're sort of indicating? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's things that are on a very, very large scale, possibly even larger than the Great Red Spot, that famous large storm that I think you can fit several Earths into mm-hmm. it on, on Jupiter, in the sort of equatorial regions of Jupiter. This could be even larger. You know, so even more, even more noticeable, even from a thousand light years and it seems, away. It seems to be moving very fast as well. With the, the gas planet orbiting the star every two point two days. Yeah, that's right. That's incredible. And fast. it's tidally locked, so one side of the planet is always facing its star, just as our moon is tidally locked with the Earth. So mm-hmm. we always see one side of the moon mm-hmm. only. The dark side, you have to actually go there. You have to, you know, just fly go, around the other side. Yeah, yep. fly around the other side. So it's geo locked, if you like, to pointing at one place. One side of the planet always faces its star. Temperatures on this side of the planet average 2,400 degrees Celsius. So obviously it's being heated up by the star. So the, the star that it's orbiting, do we have any relative size comparison to our, our own sun? Do we know if it's much larger or it's about a similar it's, size? It's Well, you know, in relation... So I know the star that it's orbiting, I don't know. 
um, I think it's it'd be at least as big as our star because our star is kind of on the small side. Yeah, on yeah. the small side, there's a lot larger stars that are out there. The actual planet itself is 16 times the size of the Earth. Yeah, that would make it, I think, even bigger than Jupiter. Mm. Jupiter, I think, 12 times the size of the Earth. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little bit bigger than Jupiter. It's very, very hot. So the side that's facing its sun is very hot and it's orbiting its star every 2.2 days. So it sounds like it's, it's really close yeah. in and yep. it's moving very quickly around and around and around. Dr. Simon O'Toole of the Australian Astronomical Observatory he says that uh, in the big zoo of planets that we know about, we're learning a lot about these gas giant exoplanets, and hopefully we can fold that back into our learning more generally about Jupiter-like planets and planet formation, the bigger picture of how planets form. This is the uh, the piece of the puzzle that they're interested in. Dr. O'Toole goes on to say it's a very promising and very exciting that this is even being attempted now. Ten years ago, there was no chance of doing it. So mm. it, just the ability to observe weather on, a, on an exoplanet, on a so, planet beyond our solar system. So, so are they still analysing this data? Like, is this an early find or is this something where they've analysed enough data to, to support uh, their findings? Well, no, with, with Kepler, they collected a huge amount of data uh, and, and unfortunately, they had problems with reaction wheels that uh, allowed them to point accurately. So mm-hmm. the primary mission of Kepler only lasted about four years. Yeah. They have retasked... So as Kep- it was orbiting around the Earth, obviously it has to move in certain ways to be able to point in the same yeah, space. Yeah, it had to stare for really long periods of time to be able to pick up planet parts passing in front of its star and see that occultation yep. you need to be looking for a long period of time mm-hmm. because you don't know what that orbit is if the orbit's a year it might be longer than that yep. then you've got to wait that length of time before you see it yes and similarly with a wobble the wobble may not happen it may be a very irregular or the frequency may be very uh, may have very long intervals mm-hmm. between it happening mm-hmm. so it looked at a, a sort of relatively small portion of the sky but stared at it for a long period of time and right. even doing that they discovered thousands of exoplanets mm-hmm. using using kepler that was a space-based telescope Telescope um, that w- that was designed specifically to look for exoplanets. Yep. You know there there is disappointment that it, that it only lasted four years. And what's the next one that's going up? Isn't are there in development there's, at the moment? Yeah. There, look, yeah. there's various space telescopes. The, the, the one that everyone's really waiting for is the James Webb Space that's Telescope. Right, yeah. So that's the, that's going to be the sequel to the Hubble Space Telescope. Much more powerful. Very very finely tuned mirror in there, and a very very te- uh, technically advanced space telescope it's taken ages for them to develop it's been it's been i mean they've been building the thing for years and Mm. years Mm -hmm. and the launch date has been postponed and slipped for a variety of reasons i think it's now 2018 they're going to launch that so that'll be another one another thing to look out for in the coming years as far as revealing more about exoplanets because obviously it's going to have the ability to look and see even more detail so instead of just seeing you know a big storm on a jupiter-sized object you may be able to get down to seeing you know if there were the equivalent of continents on on an exoplanet There may may be something that could be seen with the James Webb Space Telescope. Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter. 